Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. What is healthcare doing around cybersecurity? What are the risks that need to be addressed? And how do we begin to move healthcare as an industry forward. Thanks for joining us on This Week Health Keynote. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to our keynote show sponsors, Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Press Ganey, Sempris and Veritas for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, so on June 2nd, 2017, there was a letter sent to Congress to the honorables, let's see, Lamar Alexander, Ron Johnson, Richard Burr, Greg Walden, Michael McCall, and Devin Nunez, who were in Congress at that time, June 2nd, 2017, it said, on behalf of the healthcare industry cybersecurity task force, we are pleased to submit to you this report on improving the healthcare industry cybersecurity posture. The Cybersecurity Act of 2015 provided a much needed opportunity to convene public and private sector subject matter experts to spend the last year discussing and developing recommendations on the growing challenge of cyber attacks targeting healthcare. 21 task force members contributed to this effort, including 17 from the private sector, as well as public and private sector co-chairs of the task force. We worked diligently to balance industry and government perspectives to solicit input from outside stakeholders and the general public. A couple more lines here. The task force discussions resulted in the development of six imperatives, along with cascading recommendations and action items. All of these reflect the need for a unified effort among public and private sector organizations of all sizes and across all uh, subsectors. It goes on and it ends with, we invite you to join us as we continue to advance this very important mission. We thank you for your support of the task force and look forward to the opportunity to brief you on our findings. So here we are on the five-year anniversary of this letter and we, we are going to take a look back and hopefully look forward with three of the members of the original task force to discuss that work. And so today we have Bradford Marsh, who's now EVP Government Health Security and Technology with First Health Advisory, Teresa Meadows, CIO of Cook Children's, and David Tang, Chief Technology Officer and Founder of TauSite. And at least two of you are in completely different roles than when you were on the task force. So a lot's changed over the last five years. I want to thank you all for joining the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Bill. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank you. So a lot has changed over the last five years, but let's let's start with where we, we started. So uh, Teresa, you were co-chair of the task force. Give us an idea of, of the group, the group makeup and how it came together and uh, the work of the task force itself. Sure. Yeah, thanks. This is super exciting. I'm glad to be back. I honestly, when we left, when we finished our task force work, I kind of thought this may be the end, but it actually was really just the beginning. So I appreciate the opportunity, but just a little history lesson. So the, the task force was a, a regulated task force from the Cybersecurity Act of 2015. And so that particular act was put into law to really look at what is healthcare doing around cybersecurity? What are the risks that need to be addressed? And how do we begin to move healthcare as an industry forward? improving that posture because it was clear that was the really the early beginnings of some of the very different cybersecurity landscape we have today. So just early beginnings of ransomware, early beginnings of malware, really being prevalent in healthcare. And so we had the opportunity to bring uh, people together, not only governmental partners, but people across the industry. And so the way it came about was they sent out a call for action for people to volunteer to be part of the task force. And so 200 names were submitted for people to participate, and they narrowed down that group from 200 to 20, 21 by your count. And it really was across all phases of industry. So hospital-based people, health plans, 
pharmaceutical companies, biomedical device engineers, software engineering companies, EHR companies. And that's, they took a cross section of all those companies and formed the task force. I had the privilege of being the co-chair, I think only by default. So I missed the first meeting because I was on a cruise and I, first of all, didn't know I was on the task force. So I get off the cruise boat and they're like, congratulations, Teresa, you were selected as one of the the 20 people. And oh, by the way, we had a meeting while you were gone and we elected you co-chair. So so David (laughs) and Brad, did you nominate and elect her co-chair? Is that how that happened? Yes, with friends like us, you don't need enemies. Um, I was going to say, it's standard line. Everybody who wants to volunteer, step forward. Yeah. (laughs) So at that point, I I didn't think I really had an option but to lead the task force. And what we were told was we basically had a year to get a cohesive group, make recommendations, and produce a report. And I'm thankful to say we were able to do that. My role was really to tried to herd the cats as much as possible um, to keep us on track and to make sure that we're producing good recommendations. And so what the outcome of that was many, many meetings, many iterations. There were lots of very passionate people who felt their issues were important. And so us trying to really define what do we think the most important imperatives are. And I think Bill, our goal was we had to produce some recommendations. We had to produce a current state of what we thought the healthcare cyber landscape looked like. And not only did we have to produce some recommendations, but we also had to produce, well, what would be some intended action plans that someone post-report could take forward and maybe begin to implement those changes? So when you look at the report, it's really designed that way. The current state of healthcare, the imperatives that we felt were important and then how to what are some recommended action plans and if you've read the there's an executive summary but you can read all of the action plans uh, in the report that was the process it's a fairly hefty report as you would expect after meeting for the better part of a year about 96 pages now i I would imagine that was called down from what could have been a, a much much larger report how did you so they, they bring you together. You have to do that whole storming, norming, forming kind of thing. But once you get there, how do you determine what, what direction you're going to go? How are you going to, to build out the, the report? Like what was top of mind at that point in the cybersecurity world? I mean, honestly, we felt like we were at the very beginning. We met with a lot of under, other industries to kind of understand how they got to the point. So we met with the financial industry, the gas industry, and they kind of talked about their formation of their cybersecurity plans. And what we realized was we don't have any of that structure. So that's where we started with, okay, we first need to define organizations need some active governance. So that was like one of the first imperatives. We've got to figure out leadership structures, governance structures, and begin to set expectations across the industry as a whole. And so you'll see recommendations there. And then we just started breaking down what are our core issues. We know we have issues with medical devices. We know we have issues with legacy technology. We know that we don't have a good way to share information. And so we kind of brainstormed all the things that we didn't have. And then we kind of ranked, okay, these are the most important things we think we got to address first. So we can even get, because we were really in the infancy immaturity stage and how do we get to a mature industry like finance. Finance is very mature from their cyber practices, but we're not there yet. So what are some of the building blocks? And that's what we worked on. And you'll see in the imperatives, they're all building block type activities because those things did not, don't exist holistically in the healthcare industry. So I I think this is a point that we should really call out one of the reasons why Teresa was nominated in absentia, she's a nurse. All these other infrastructure sectors, they're critical. They can impact people's lives. They can impact health. Ours directly does. Every day we are touching patients. Teresa and I are both nurses. Now, I I was not actually a sitting member of the task force. I directly supported Dr. Lauren Thompson from the federal EHR, actually at the time it was the Program Executive Office, Defense Healthcare Management 
Management Systems Interagency Program Office, DODVA, I directly supported her, but we were the only two bedside clinicians in the start. Now it did evolve over time. We had new members come in and they had clinical background, but it was seeing how we can be alike and how we are different from those other critical infrastructure sectors, which is why it was so vitally important that Teresa sat as that co-chair. So Brad, because it gives a different perspective. Yeah. So Brad, was cybersecurity actually impacting the delivery of care at that point where we worry or, or just we were sort of projecting and saying, no, it can. If cybersecurity escalates, if these attacks escalate, it can actually impact the delivery of care and actually cause harm. We were seeing it more and more after meaningful use was signed in and we, we got more and more EHRs. That's great. We were, it's made more affordable to more agencies. Great. You have this ability. Now we can stop manual data entry. That saves patients. We had barcode medication administration that has saves patients. But when we have those things, you start to connect more to reduce other risk. When you have a clinician mindset, it's patient safety. When you have a cybersecurity perspective, it's cybersecurity safety. What Teresa, being in the, the position she's in, she is the one person that at that time could say, cybersecurity is patient safety. Yep. And so we were seeing the writing on the wall. Back in, in, in an allegory, when you look at the world wars, if there was a red cross on a building, it was avoided from shelling for the most part. We're gonna speak in generalities. That red cross used to protect you. As warfare has evolved over time, that then became a target. We were the soft target. We thought nobody would attack us because we are doing good. We are taking care of people. We are not political. We are not in any way, shape, or form attacking another country with a hospital. But when we were seen as the soft underbelly of the United States in our critical infrastructure sector, that's where it began to destabilize. And yeah. so we saw the over the horizon. The one thing I might add to what Brad said, I think what we were, the federal, our federal partners were seeing more of that type of activity than we were. So we were more still stuck in how do we protect PHI and how do we not have a breach? And so mm -hmm. really cybersecurity today, in some instances, is not really about the PHI. It's really about how do I prevent somebody from doing the job that they need to do for money? And so it's become a, a more of a different spin on it. And we were kind of caught in the crosshairs because we're only worried about HIPAA, but this issue is a bigger issue than just protecting PHI. And so I think our federal partners like Brad and others kind of educated us about, okay, we're, these are the things that we see, but we don't share this information publicly. So there's not a way for you to know all the things going on. And this was the first time we kind of had insight behind the, the curtain about Healthcare is a target. We just we're, we just don't know it because we're not engaged at the level that we should be in the, in these topics. And so I think that's one of the main things I took away is we have to be more engaged and more sharing there. All right, we'll get back to our show in just a minute. I want to tell you about the podcast that I am the most excited about right now that I am listening to as often as I possibly can, and that is the town hall show that we launched on the community channel, This Week Health Community, and it airs on Tuesdays and Thursdays. What I've done is I have essentially recruited these great hosts who are coming in and they're tapping people in their networks and having conversations with them about the things that are frontline kind of stuff. So it's, it's technical deep dives, it's hot button issues, it's tactical challenges, it's all the stuff that is happening right there where you live on a daily basis. We have some great hosts on this show. We have Charles Boise, who's a, a data scientist, Craig Richardville, Lee Milligan, Reed Steffen, who are all CIOs. We have Jake Lancaster, Brett Oliver, who are CMIOs. We have Mark Weissman, who is a former CMIO and host of the CMIO podcast, and now a CIO at Title Health. And we also have 
the incomparable Sue Shade, who is fantastic. And I'm, I'm really excited about the fact that she's tapping into her network and having some great conversations as well. I'd love for you to tune into these episodes. I am learning a ton myself. You can subscribe on our community channel, This Week Health Community. You can do that on iTunes, on Spotify, on Google, on Stitcher, you name it. We're out there and you can subscribe there and start having a listen yourself. All right, let's get back to our show. David, as a chief technology officer, what was your role on the task force? So my role was we safeguarded the authentication for all the clinical systems. I think we had several major IDNs in, in the room. It turns out we, the company I was with before, we, secured, we were the authentication for all of them. And so as the de facto front door to safeguarding access to EMRs, it is proving the identity of the users, the clinicians getting in, and that they actually follow the security rules and making sure that at least at that level, the identity of the proper users were being validated in a convenient manner. That is at least at the first level of security that you would want in defending the system. We hear that finance is sophisticated. What did you learn about finance that you said, well, gosh, is it the technology? Is it the frameworks? Is it the connection between really understanding the, the government? Is it how the organizations work well together? I mean, what, what was it that made finance sophisticated? We hear that in healthcare all the time. They're sophisticated, but what makes them sophisticated? I have a really quick anecdote on that. We were briefed by the head of one of the major banks. This head of security comes on and she said, I'm really fortunate. I have 500 cybersecurity analysts on my team to analyze every incident. And the four largest IDNs basically says, I bet you none of us have more than five on our staff. That's the ratio. That's the disparity. And then the comment was, we can't hire and keep cybersecurity professionals because when we train them, finance will hire them away. We cannot keep up. And that shortage of staffing, the shortage of expertise, the attractiveness of the financial and other regulated industries that can just grab them will always make healthcare be kind of the cobbler's children and not have enough staffing to keep them up, up to date. So is it just budgets and staffing? I think that's one dimension. I think it's the other one is like Teresa brought up. It's the maturity. They've been dealing with this for a longer time. Digital transformation has occurred in finance way back into the 70s or even earlier. But in healthcare, it's only happened within the past 15 years. So one of the jokes I always tell people, I said, it used to be safer for records to be kept in the records department because to steal a thousand records, you have to walk out with 250 pounds of, of material. In 2016 or 2015, 120 million records were stolen at four ounces per patient jacket. That's millions of pounds of paper you would have to transport to steal it. And yet we could steal it in an instant. Now that we're electronic, it's just as easy for somebody to compromise that system with a single click. Uh, and so several of the people I know in the UK, uh, coincident with the fact that with, by the time we came out to publish the report, the WannaCry attack occurred simultaneously. Several of the CIOs I knew said, we had no idea what was going on. Screens were turning red across our system. Help desks were lighting up. Finally, somebody said, we're being attacked. And we use the overhead pager to tell everyone, unplug your computers from the wall. I mean, this is the reality of what was going on at the time we published the report. It's a different world. I think the other thing we learned is in finance, regardless of your size, if I'm a small mom and pop bank, I am required to have the same standards as a Chase Bank or a one large bank and today a small mom and pop doctor's office is not required to have the same standards as a large health system or an IDN and so 
having some of that, those standard nomenclatures, which was really what the other part of the Cybersecurity Act was the 405D work. That was really what that work was intended to do was to build those standards and some of that nomenclature so that small, medium, large are all operating under the same mechanisms and having the same type of support that you would have if you're big or large. And that's the difference between finance and healthcare. We're all independent entities. And we have, while states do impact the financial sector, it is to a lesser extent right. than it is in healthcare. We've got sharing laws for patient information that Texas, Oklahoma, they, they're so close, but oh, we can't share because X, Y, and Z. It's an opt-in, it's an opt-out. There are so many different elements that go into this that are different requirements. One of the biggest things that um, we did was I remember a whole week where we just went through law and we saw how there were conflicting requirements, even from the federal government, that we were required to do A, B, and C, and then we were prohibited from doing C, D, and E. But wait a minute, we've got a conflict. How do we rectify that? And, and really, again, it goes back to in the financial district, yes, they have an impact on people's lives, but if I give you an extra quarter that's not gonna kill you. If I give you an extra dose of insulin, I could potentially kill you. Right. And that is where that gravitas does come in. The thing I took away was that information sharing. I was totally taken aback and, and enthralled with the FISAC, seeing how they shared the information that mm -hmm. as soon as there was an indicator of compromise at bank A across the US, other banks immediately began to action on that to make sure they weren't being compromised. What does that look like? Is that like something that all banks subscribe to, or is that just an internet channel that boom, it goes out? I mean, it, it sounds like it's, it's pretty structured. Well, the ISACs established years ago, information sharing and analysis centers. Now the terminology is, is changed on the federal side from NKIC and everything else. It used to all feed into a cybersecurity analysis center. Mm -hmm. They could share across ISACs. And so it's, yes, it is a subscription. The, the health sector, we have one. And uh, as a matter of fact, one of the members of the, the task force became the leader of the HISAC, I believe, after we submitted the report. Mm -hmm. And we saw the uh, value of it. But really investing in it, the HISAC, is doing the hard work of trying to connect us all. As soon as you see an indicator of compromise, it's one thing if you've got a David Ting looking at a screen that pops up and you say, hey, we've got an indicator of compromise. Brad, we've got, a, we've got this, watch out. There's another thing when there's hundreds and thousands of these right. messages being sent, we've got those five people at the hospital not the 500 that can then flag it as a true event or a fake, uh, fake positive. Right. So being able to subscribe to the HISAC is one thing, but being able to use actionable data is another. Right. Having managed services, having that capability that somebody that, as a college professor, one of those things that I do on the side is tell my students, don't just tell me something, tell me so what. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're missing. We're missing the so what. Some of these mom and pops, the financial sector doesn't have critical access banks. We have critical access hospitals. They have no money. They have, in order to pay for people to be there, the federal government is giving as much money as they can. The states are doing what they can, but it's barely enough to hold on to the providers. There's not the money there to support a CISO to sit on the ground with a cyber team in rural Montana. That's why some of the recommendations you'll see, Bill, you may remember with the safe harbors around you know, providing EHR services to smaller entities. That was one of the things that we really pushed for was give us some safe harbor so we can provide cybersecurity services to the small entities that we work with and allow us to be not breaking the law around referrals and other things so that if I'm going to provide them the EHR, also let me provide them their security software, maybe a managed service, because if we can start 
spread some of that the way we did with EHRs, then the, the mom and pop can have some of the same things that we have. And that was one of the recommendations in the task force report that was really important because there's no way people are going to have the resources that maybe I have. And you could very easily violate, I think it was the Star Clause, right? Yeah, Stark. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so we talked about you know, how do we, and actually we were able to start getting some provisions in Stark that actually happened where now we can provide security services under Stark and not be in violation. So many things have changed over, but it's again, picking one thing at a time and really going after it. And so that's kind of what we chose chose to do as we went through the recommendation piece, where are we today? But that's one of the outcomes is now with Stark, we can provide some of that security to others if they would like it and need it. I think that change makes a huge difference because like you say, not everybody, in fact, the majority of the smaller practice or smaller hospitals. And then let's not even talk about the distributed nature of healthcare with these smaller independent practices and and that have zero. And, And the whole, and now that we're working from home, the whole distributed nature of where everything that is used to deal, to treat patients and deliver care. We've expanded that surface area incredibly over the past five years. Just- well, in the 21st Century Cures Act, as they implemented in April, you have to connect. If the patient exactly. wants you to, you have to connect. Josh Corman used to go around in our meetings and the quote that, I don't remember where he stole it, but I'm going to steal it from him. It's, if you can't afford to protect it, you can't afford to connect it. And there were exceptions built into that Cures Act, but it is very explicit. If you cannot connect to an API because of security reasons, you have to spell it out. This API, this security reason, and this is the get well plan. That takes a lot. And our cybersecurity professionals that we do have are busy trying to protect our perimeters. We're trying to secure at our walls. And as David said, with our distributed nature, now I'm trying to protect over at my people's houses. Exactly. That whole perimeter model, as we all know, is basically gone. We have to basically secure right up to the edge of care delivery. There is no perimeter anymore. You have your business associates, you have hospital at home, you have, there's no perimeter. It's It's that whole Jericho project where the walls came down, the perimeter was or infrastructure, that's basically what we have in healthcare. Your firewall is not the edge of where, where you can protect anymore. All right. So I want to I want to hit the imperatives. And you've started to hit on the imperatives, but I, I want you to walk us through uh, each one. I'm just going to read them out. And then I'd love to get one of you to, to sort of comment on it. And then if the others want to chime in, that would be great. So the first one was define and streamline leadership governance and expectations for healthcare industry cybersecurity. What is that about? Yeah, that was really trying to, first of all, educate senior leadership in organizations that healthcare security is a priority. And so we put very structured recommendations around how to build a governance structure, who should be involved in your discussions around cybersecurity, How do we get more interaction between the CEOs of our organizations and our federal counterparts and begin putting, if we don't have good leadership at each of the organizations who understand it, how do we expect the average nurse or doctor to understand it? And so really it was around education, defining what good posture is, what is NIST, how to use the NIST framework, how do you incorporate some of those governance techniques into your daily activities? And then how do you begin to use the 405D work that's happened around best practices, even though they hate when people say that, but good, good hygiene to really begin to change and move the needle. And there's still a lot of work that needs to happen there. I mean, we're still out of sight, out of mind. It's always, I always say to people, yes, there was a cybersecurity incident, but it's kind of like having a baby. Having a baby is really painful. But people forget and then they have more babies, right? So it's kind of the same thing. Okay, Scripps had a big event. Mm. That was real painful for us, like people who weren't at Scripps. But then we've kind of moved on and we've forgotten about it, right? And so it's keeping that, that, that pain 
in, in top of mind in your organizations and putting plans together and risk risk you, now. You went exactly where I was going to go, which was we had one cry going on at the time of this report. And it was, I was still hearing from CISOs and others that it was still hard to get the attention of, of anyone because it just wasn't, it just, it wasn't close enough to home. But what I've heard since the Scripps event is it has gotten to the board level. It has gotten to the executive team level. We have CISOs now addressing the board on an ongoing basis. What are we doing? How are we doing it? So it, it feels to me like maybe that the task force can take credit, but that event more than anything might be the turning point for, oh, this cost Scripps $110 million and that doesn't even count reputation and other things that seems to have gotten the attention. Would you agree with that? Oh, I, I agree with that 100%. That's a gift that keeps on giving that particular incident. And so I've used that with our boards our more than once. And we've, the cybersecurity insurance insurers are also using that event and using that to yeah. force people into making better decisions or doing things that they traditionally haven't done. So I, I definitely think I, that was just, I, I think in our mind, it's a prediction. Like we predicted there was going to be an event that would eventually get people motivated to do something. And that's unfortunately for scripts that they had to be the, the poster child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the one. But I think your point is really well taken that the cybersecurity in, uh, industry, the cyber insurance industry has really now taken um, a step forward to say, our premiums are gonna keep going up unless you can prove that you're doing a better job around securing your infrastructure, securing all the things that are needed to have, you know, cover all the CI and a, the confidentiality, the integrity and the availability and follow a standardized framework or your rates will keep going up. That's the side effect of the scripts incident. And, yeah. and I think in that in action item 1.11 through 1.16, we really wanted to have that cybersecurity leader that could bring together HHS, public, private, and really lead that charge. When we continually, as we should, have the secure uh, and, and peaceful transfer of power from leader to leader over each year, each four-year period, we also see policies change. And the one thing that any tactician will tell you is you the chink in the armor is at the transition of authority. It's when people are trying to get spun up into their jobs. That's where somebody is most vulnerable. And so what we were trying to, to petition for is we need somebody that isn't tied to that. We need somebody that can, that can stay the course. And when the leadership changes out, they may rotate out afterwards. But much like you see with the Secretary of Defense, they tend to span the gaps because that's what's needed. We needed somebody to bring us together. We had a great group of people and we had conversations not often had in public. We had people talking about intellectual property. We had people talking about patient safety and people talking about cybersecurity. And they were all in the same room and they were saying the same thing. So it, if we had that in a leadership position and that's highest leadership positions, in that pretty white house down on Pennsylvania, that would be good because then we have a common voice and a direct path to those that can make a difference. Mm -hmm. I love this. I'm trying to figure out if the second one is the elephant in the room or the emperor has no clothes. I'm not sure which, but <laughs> increase the security and resilience of medical devices and health IT. At that time, we were dealing with, you can go into any system and 15% of their systems weren't patched. They're just basic kind of stuff. Medical devices was the Wild West. I mean, just completely the Wild West. And part of that was an FDA problem. And But part of that was, it didn't report. I was a CIO. It didn't report to me. Yeah. And That's the people who it did report to had no concept of cybersecurity, yeah. nor, nor, did they, nor did they care. I mean, how, I, I, <laughs> no, who, who wants to talk about this one? I mean, what were you thinking and, and what were you yeah, doing? Yeah, I'll start it and then certainly chime in. This, this particular one was probably where we had our most heated mm -hmm. discussions, specifically between the FDA and industry, because they did not feel they had the authority to regulate medical devices. 
They felt they had the authority to offer guidance. And because I give you guidance, you should follow it. And so the message we were trying to say to them is, you may say, we, we're giving you guidance that you should allow people to patch your devices. But, but on the industry side, what happens is a manufacturer sees that as guidance and that's optional. It's not a must do. And so there was lots of discussion about how do we make the guidance more regulatory? <laughs> because there was so much variation. And I think by the end, we're starting to get we're starting to get there and we're seeing a lot of improvements there, but this is probably still our biggest weakness because we don't have good regulations around creation of devices, maintenance of devices, and we don't have a good regulatory body who drives some of that. Yeah, and, and a lot of times we can't identify all the devices. Now we've since segmented them off the network. We've created yeah. VLANs and those kind of things, but has, has this ever happened to you? I had, I had a, a device manufacturer come to me and say, if you if you upgrade that device, if you upgrade the OS on that device, you will it will no longer be FDA approved and it, you, you cannot use it to in, in the, the delivery of medicine. Have you not had that conversation? 100%. That was the exact example we used with the FDA. And they're like, that is not true. Man, I should have called the, F I <laughs> so called that's the why FDA. That's why the conversation got superheated, right? Because the manufacturers are saying it absolutely is true. And so that's the dynamic that we kind of had to push through is that we need the FDA when a manufacturer says mm -hmm. that, say to them, that is not true. And the healthcare partners, we need to know that it's not true because we believe what the manufacturer tells us. And so when you say that as a manufacturer, we're like, well, crap, okay, I guess I better not touch it. When the reality of it is, it was never true to begin with. And so Brad or David could certainly add on to that, but it was a very passionate topic. Well, especially since we had a, a CIO who said, we're out to buy a new EMR scanner because we can't, or CT scanner, because the vendor won't allow us to patch it. Oh, man. Okay. I remember seeing the first scan of our network and they said, hey, you have this many Windows XP devices. Well, it was 2012. You have this many Windows XP devices. I'm like, where, where are the Windows XP devices? And it was all medical devices. All of it. Right. All managed by different departments, not under the CIO's purview or control, except when they join the network. <laughs> and... To, to look at it, Teresa might be able to say, okay, all those off my network until they get patched and she'd fund new ones being purchased. What about that mom and pop? What about that small critical access hospital? Yeah. They, they can't do that. Yeah. And it's a critical access hospital. I mean, it's in the name. It's critical to that area. We need to keep that up and running. If we go to downtime, that's going to have significant impact to the American people. And so... We, need to, we needed to be able to, how can we safely do this? How can we facilitate this? And so we, we became great preponderance. Great preponderance of our time became community. One of the key things that a nurse has to do to get their license is we have to do return demonstrations. We have to teach. Everything is about teaching and being an RN. So it became teaching. We had to say, hey, here's the phone number to the FDA. We would hand out the phone number. If a vendor tells you this, you have to stand your ground and you have to be able to have the right intelligence. We are in the hospitals before I, when I retired out of the military, even in the military, we, we've got people doing a lot of jobs to keep the lights on and keep things moving. In the civilian healthcare sector, it's even worse. Mm -hmm. And that is even before a pandemic. And when we put our nurses and our clinicians to the brink, we've got our CIOs trying to come up with new virtual ways to connect people in 24 hours or less. With all 17 no-fail missions, oh, by the way, now I've got a, I can't trust my vendor. You need to have those strong relationships and we need to have those conversations. So that's why that imperative really was there is we needed to make sure that we got the action. Well, the, the next two are really about the workforce. So one is increased capacity uh, to prioritize and ensure cyber awareness and technical capabilities. The second, the number four is increased healthcare industry readiness through improved cybersecurity awareness and education. And this is really about the staff. Uh, you know, at the time back then, we weren't talking about, well, we, we were talking about clinician burnout and those kind of things. 
not at the level we're currently talking about it. We also weren't talking about the battle for IT staff, uh, mm -hmm. although we were talking about it, but now it is really acute. And it's, I, I don't know if I want to talk about it back then or, or now, because it's, it's only been exacerbated by some things that are going on. So what were you hoping that, that was going to happen as a result of these two things? Josh Corman and I spent a good weekend yelling at each other over the phone, making this work. Absolutely. It was that, that throughput. It is, is getting people out and then a graduate out of school applying for a, a cyber job. Okay, you need 10 years of experience. Well, I can't get experience until I'm hired. Well, you can't get hired until you have 10. And it was that chicken and egg. And so that's where Josh and I, and when we brought this to the task force, we refined it even further. We had to start looking at internship programs. We have to start looking at growing those cyber professionals. It's more than just a degree. It's more than just a certification. It's that experience. It's the mission. Being able to bring people in and really develop them. And we have to bring in a diverse population. We have to pull them from rural towns and we have inner cities. We need every ethnicity, gender, uh, sexual identity. It doesn't matter. We need all of this because the different perspectives, the holistic perspectives in healthcare is what is required to be able to do this. When we have these different perspectives, we can see things in, in color and in 3D in some places where one person looking at it from the same area that I grew up in and, and looks like me and talks like me is going to think like me in some ways. That's dangerous. By having that diverse background, we really benefit from it. And so those are the things that we needed to inspire. How do we get that younger workforce? How do we tap into that? And really, it's those internships. It's looking for the ability to get an internship, not to put the intern. If my company were to work for Teresa, we wouldn't put the intern on there by, by themselves. That's, that's not safe. But it's to put them with those experienced individuals that have worked in other sectors. David pointed it out earlier. We, there's a brain drain over those other sectors that have more money. But it's when we get those cybersecurity professionals to see what are you doing? Well, I'm fixing this switch. I'm fixing, I'm fixing the firewall. I'm putting this denial. But what are you doing? Walk them into the hospital. Again, pre-COVID, get them into the hospitals. Get them into the care settings. Touch the patient. Look at them and say, you, the security professional, are just as much of an impact as this nurse. You are saving people. And that's really what we wanted to try and get out there is we need to instill a sense of mission. We get good people. We make good decisions. We grow them. If we are good, they will come back to our sector. They might go out for a bit, but then it's experience. We bring them back in. They have their 10 years and now we can do it. But we yeah, can't we can, do it without that pipeline. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we can't afford them at that point, but yes, that's <laughs> yeah, a couple period. of other things that were here that some have come to fruition and some haven't was building cybersecurity curriculum into nursing and, and uh, medical school curriculum so that when a physician or a nurse comes out of school, they understand the risk with cybersecurity. And the other recommendation, which I think still could happen if we get some sort of support from our governmental partners is when we did meaningful use, they gave money to communities to set up the community health networks where they actually trained doctors and nurses in, in communities where they couldn't afford EHR support. They built the HENS. Everybody heard of the HEN network where they trained thousands of physicians. They went out and they did cyber EHR activities. We asked for a similar program to Meaningful Use where we could get money out to the, the rural areas where we could actually train cybersecurity professionals. And those rural areas could then share resource there. And so that was one of the recommendations that we had. Has that happened yet? No, but I think some of those things, those concepts really helped expanding the HR to the small mom and pops. 
we need the same with cyber. We need we need something similar, and we need some governmental incentive to help with that. And so, I still have my fingers crossed that might happen one day. But that's that's some of the ideas that are in the report. So I, I was sitting around with three or four CIOs, and we were talking about this uh, staffing shortage. And one of the CIOs from a major academic medical center said he went through his job descriptions and took out a uh, college degree required mm-hmm. on a whole bunch of them. And because right. and he looked at it and he goes, look, I can train somebody in cybersecurity uh, to be an analyst. I could train them to do this. I could train them to do that. And cybersecurity was one of the areas, but there was a couple of others. And he's like, and we now see ourselves as a constant training organization. And we're bringing people in, we're training them, we're giving them the next level, we're giving them access to colleges and universities after we bring them in. And it, it gets to that, if, if you take off college degree required, it does increase the, the pool of candidates. So you can hit that diversity. It also gives people an opportunity at a living wage that potentially aren't going to have that open up to them. It was a really, it was a really interesting conversation. The only reason I wanted to throw that in there is I want more CIOs to hear that and to think about it. Because most, uh, not most, but I will say a lot of organizations, if you go in there, there's just a whole bunch of job descriptions that you read it and you go, college degree required, really? You know. Well, and, and I really, so I enjoy that teaching it in nursing school and medical school. And, and I, I made sure that one was in there because the, when I was in the Army, somebody would ask me what, what I did. And I'm like, I am the Army's first cyber nurse. And they're like, what the heck is a cyber nurse? And I'm like, I don't know. I made it up because there's, <laughs> who else can sit with the CISO and discuss the VLAN structure, where the IV pump is, and why it's a bad idea to put your cell phone charging on the anesthesia machine, just USB, it's just for power, which is by far my favorite picture I've ever seen in any textbook. But those are the things that it, it is often said that the clinicians are our greatest vulnerability, that they're out there, they're causing problems. As a clinician myself, I've pulled a few things in my day. But, lots of problems still, but, <laughs> but it was being able to understand how the cybersecurity impacted that patient care and patient care impacted cybersecurity. I was able to start to open those lines of communication. When I came to my company, I was the first nurse with the cyber background. And, and that's when we changed our, our modality to include cyber clinicians because We need to stop having a meeting where the CIO is here, the CISO is here, and the CMIO and CMO don't even show up to the meeting. They should not be at the point where a clinician is arguing with a CISO and then they get involved. It should be a a cogent family. You can't really have that if your clinicians do not understand some of the basics. By including that in that care, in healthcare, we've had gel in, gel out. When you go into a patient room, you got to gel in and then, hey, how you doing, Mr. Russell? Good to see you today. I'm Brad, your, your nurse. And then as you leave, gel out. We empowered our patients. Hey, if you don't see your clinician do this, you tell them you want that. It was great. Did it say, Teresa, you got to make sure you take a shower, make sure you use soap, wash your hair. No, we didn't do that because there was a base level of hygiene that was expected. We just added to that base level with a little bit more. What did we do with cybersecurity? We didn't have a base level. There was nothing at home. We didn't talk about it. We just said, when you come to work, you you, multi-factor authentication, you got to lock things every two seconds. There was not an understanding because at home on their cell phones, because, and I know every single person on this thing has gotten the well, I've got an iPhone. This is the way it works. And it, it's easy. It should be, healthcare should be like this iPhone. But it's not because it is people's lives. It is other things connected. And by having that education on those, to those clinicians early on, we can establish that base level of cyber hygiene and then add to it when we get to work. Number five, I'm going to skip. It, it essentially talks about mechanisms to protect R&D and intellectual property. And I understand where that would come from and why that's important. Number six, though, I, I want to hit on before we quickly pivot to how what has changed in the last five years and 
and how are we doing? So the last one is improve information sharing of industry threats, weaknesses, and mitigations. So you talked about HiSec and, and sharing of information. And most CISOs that I know in healthcare right now are connected in there. They're monitoring that. So it, that has to be considered a win out of this, I would assume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think the other win is the creation of the cyber working group under the healthcare sector council. And that literally, the formation of that group took the recommendations and they're bringing the recommendations to life. So they have working groups that are really trying to address all the issues. And there've been a lot of information sharing, a lot of good white papers, a lot of good content that's actually usable. It's, it's one thing to write a 99 page, 100 page report that may or may not be usable by someone. The work of the cyber working group is really creating things that people can use. And that has really driven the information sharing. I mean, I would say before all of this work, we would have never been notified by the federal government that healthcare was under attack for a cybersecurity mm -hmm. through Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, this a chief, whatever his title is, I never got any of the titles right for the governmental people, but he was tweeting to healthcare, hey, healthcare, you, you, you have an intimate threat. That has never happened until after this work occurred. And so I think we now have visibility at the federal level that we, they do have to communicate with us and they have information they could share and they can share it in a way that we all understand. And yeah, it's still a work in progress, but exponentially better than it has ever been prior to this work. I've seen a lot of people adopt frameworks NIST frameworks and other things, at least over the last five years, there were some that have adopted it as, as far back as 10 years ago. But over the last five years, I hear a lot more, even the smaller systems talking about, yeah, we, we're using the NIST framework. This framework is, I mean, is, is something anyone could pick up and really build off of, measure off of the whole, whole nine yards. I do want to I do want to touch on this in the last couple of minutes we have, which is how are we doing? We sort of talked about this over the, over it, but I'd like to hear from all three. How are we doing? How do you feel about the work and the impact that it's had, and how are we doing in this cyber world? It's constantly changing. So, obviously, work you did five years ago, you could get together today and, and start over, and because the the world changes every day, but. David, we'll start with you. Talk a little bit about the work and its impact, and then how do you think we're doing? So I think the attack surface has gotten a lot larger. I think the number of people, the practices, the smaller organizations are being hammered. I mean, post-COVID, my two-doc dental practice, he's doing dental hygiene, and he's telling me about how he got attacked during COVID. And he said, do you know anything about ransomware? He said, because my machines were all locked up when I came back. It was identified as an XP machine that he had on the network that was used for scanning x-rays. The legacy machines, unpatched, old versions, entry point. He said, I learned about Bitcoins. I learned how to restore my machine. The attacks are, he said, why would they attack a small practice? We're two doctors. I said, because they're working from home. Not only exposed more vulnerabilities, created more places where patient records are being accessed, stored, it's also creating more access points to back-end hospital systems where they become also the entry points for attacks. More credentials are stolen. All these are the same byproducts of we've expanded our delivery net systems. We've expanded places where we're accessing. We're trying to now, with information sharing, start to leverage the power of having an IT backbone that can accelerate and improve healthcare, but we sure have increased our attack surface and the sophistication of the attacks are gotten way better because these organizations run like businesses. David, I can ask you 40 follow-on questions, but very, very briefly, we're relying on people. We need people. We need people. We hear that all, all the time, but you're the technologist, chief technology officer. We have two clinicians here, but you're deep in the technology. Isn't it going to be machines? identifying those attacks and 
giving us a lot more notice when they're happening and shutting down certain areas. Isn't that the future of what we're looking at? The future is really how do we leverage all the newer technologies with you know instrumentation, IoT technology, AI at the edge, inferencing at the edge. How do we make the system smarter? How do we not make necessarily the clinician the point of having to decide, should I click on this? Should I do this? They should be focusing on treating the patients. The system has to be smarter. We have to have that intelligence built into the network, built into the system, built into an infrastructure that allows us to manage this distributed environment that we're creating for uh, better healthcare delivery. And so there's, yes, there's, we have to manage it like a, a really true distributed infrastructure. So, around so, air delivery. So Teresa, you're going to get the last word and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about how we're doing, but Brad, I want to go to you first and say, how is the public private doing? Have we made progress with how we're working, the, the, the government agencies, federal, state, and the private sector? Have we made a significant amount of progress there? We have, we really have. And, and Teresa pointed it out. It's the shields up alerts that we get from HISAC. It's the, and it's coming from that federal side. It's the tweet. It's it's these the bodies that are sharing the information we can. And, and again, there are certain classified levels that we can't share. Well, actually, it's not we anymore. I'm out. But the uh, they can't share. But they can say the right things that causes all of us to take a look. And the other side of it is we've moved forward. We've moved down the strip, but unfortunately, our enemy has moved as well. The fact that now when we go in and sit down to talk to a CISO, we're not only talking to the CISO anymore. They're not sending the intern to talk to the managed service providers. They're sending the CMO and the CFO. They are sitting in the room and their eyes are no longer glazing over. Now they're not saying, what have you done for me lately? Instead, they're saying, what can you do to protect me in the future? Fantastic. And Teresa, close us out like you started us. How are we doing in healthcare? Are we making progress? Yeah, I mean, I think we're making significant progress, but to the point Brad and David made, we're not as fast as our enemy. So we have to continue making as much progress. Like if one of the things, if I had to go back and look at our healthcare work over in the cybersecurity task force, we did not talk about business continuity at all. (laughs) And so if I were to go backwards in time, I would spend more time on business continuity and how do we get organizations prepared for when the thing happens? Mm-hmm. Because it's going to happen until we can all, until David invents the best technology that protects us all, it's going to happen. And we did not have any recommendations on how to prepare your organization to live through a four week scripts yeah. situation. And so if I were going forward, I think some of our recommendations still haven't been addressed and they need to be addressed. So I think we need to continue to stay on the gas pedal, but I think we need to add some of those more business oriented items that we did not talk about in the task force because we just weren't knowledgeable at the point. And now we are, we have different, we know more than we did then. I think to your point, uh, Teresa, five years ago, ransomware in healthcare was just starting. There were only one or two incidents and now it's pervasive. They've gone really sophisticated and they'll just take you down. And you well, can fail like the Hindenburg or you can fail like the Miracle on the Hudson. They had two statistically different results. What are we gonna choose to do? That's a great analogy. I'm gonna use that. Thank you. Yeah. I, I wanna thank you guys, I, not, not only for the work that you did and the amount of time that you put in, but you made me feel, I was kind of sad I wasn't on the task force. Can you believe that? I was kind of sad. You made me feel like you guys really bonded. It was a great team and and, and a lot of great work was done. So thanks again for coming on the show and sharing this information. We will put a link to the actual report. It's still worth reading. Five years old, very much worth reading. A lot of great content in there. I, I went through it again today. And again, really highly recommend people take a look at that. And again, thank you very much. Thank Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Great seeing all of you. What a great discussion. If you know someone that might benefit from a channel like this, from these kinds of discussions, go ahead and forward them a note. I know if I were a CIO today, 
I would have every one of my team members listening to a show like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. Send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our keynote sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are Sirius Healthcare, VMware, Transparent, Press Ganey, Sempris, and Veritas. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.